The opinions expressed here are personal to the individuals appearing in the show, anecdotal and not an endorsement. The podcast is not a substitute for legal advice. We highly recommend that you please consult a legal professional before acting on any information heard on the podcast. Listener's discretion is strongly advised. The accused Narayan Kamre, age 65, is charged under Indian Penal Code, Section 306, abatement of suicide. Because Dubey is dead, he's been killed after an encounter broke out. This is the big breaking news that's coming in dramatically. Suspense is finally over. The Mumbai trial court today gave Mohammed Ajmal Amir Kassab the death sentence for murder and waging war against the country 17 months after the 26th. The Constituent Assembly to frame the Constitution in terms of paragraph 3 of the resolution. Hi, I'm Sandhya and welcome to the Daksh podcast. Daksh is a Bangalore-based non-profit dedicated to judicial reforms and access to justice in India. Through this series, we will explore the law and justice system with the help of our wonderful guests. The plurality of India means that personal laws differ according to religion. In the context of family law, the citizens are often overwhelmed by the litigation process. The lack of accessible information for citizens, the stigma attached to discussing matrimonial issues are all formidable challenges that citizens will have to overcome while resolving their family disputes. This episode is a discussion dedicated to demystifying family law. We are joined by Chetna B, who is a family lawyer in Chennai. Chetna explains the various concepts pertaining to family law, starting from the family courts and the work they do. We then proceed to discuss the nuance associated with matrimonial issues such as cruelty, custody, and also talk about how the system works differently across various legislations. An important aspect we signpost in this discussion is about how the system is inaccessible to the LGBTQ community. We discussed the way forward to make the family courts more citizen-friendly. Hi, Chetna. So before we go to the family courts and the matters that come there, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your experience in the family courts. Sure. I graduated from Gujarat uh, National Law University in 2017 with my least favorite subject being family law. I then went into uh, corporate law and I worked in a corporate law firm in Bombay for one year, after which I came back to Chennai to start litigating. And hey, I really like family courts and I really like family law to my surprise. So I've just stuck around here and it's been four years since I've come back to Chennai. So my work spans across the family courts, trial courts like magistrate courts also and the Madras High Court. So just for our listeners, now that we are discussing family courts, can you tell the difference between family courts and other courts and the kind of matters that come to family courts? Because all of us know that, of course, matrimonial issues come there. But what other kind of matters come to the family courts? So family courts are special courts that have been established under the Family Courts Act that deal with issues arising from marriages like divorce, guardianship, legal separation and it can also deal with property that a couple jointly gets at the time of marriage right so these family courts specialize in dealing with these matrimonial issues and according to the family courts act they are established in any town or city where the population is over 1 million 
So if you go to a small village today, you probably would not see a family court. So places that don't have a family court, the cases are tried in either the subordinate courts, if it's a Hindu marriage, or the district courts, if it's a Christian marriage or a marriage under the Special Marriage Act. Can you elaborate a little bit about whether all marriages, regardless of religion, actually are under the jurisdiction of the family courts? And uh, under which law can a couple belonging to different religions like register their marriage? And, you know, can you elaborate on these two things a little bit for us? Sure. So when you come to the family courts, yes, every marriage, irrespective of religion, will be subject to the jurisdiction of the family court. So I'll give an example of a Hindu couple married under Hindu law and a couple who have registered their marriage under the Special Marriage Act, this couple belonging to different religions, and a couple who have been married under the Christian Marriage Act, a proper Christian marriage. All three of them will be subject to the jurisdiction of family courts. It's a little interesting when we step outside the jurisdiction of family courts to those towns that have a population of less than 1 million or don't have a family court yet. So in these cases, the subordinate court of that district will handle the Hindu marriage act cases. And divorces under the Indian Divorce Act, however, will come before the district court because of how the word court is defined under the Hindu marriage act and the Indian Divorce Act. If I can give an example from Chennai, because that's where I'm from. In Chennai city, in the family courts, a divorce under the Indian Divorce Act, which is applicable to Christians, and Hindu Marriage Act, both come under the family court. But let me move outside Chennai a little bit towards our airport in the Kanchipuram district. There, the Alandur subordinate court will deal with divorces under the Hindu Marriage Act. But the Kanchipuram District Court only has the jurisdiction to deal with divorces under the Indian Divorce Act. It's going to be a matter of time before family courts are established in other parts. So until that happens, I think this division in jurisdiction is a very interesting angle that will always exist. And now cases under the Guardians and Wards Act is something that can only be filed in the district court. That's also that. that can't be filed in a subordinate court. Now with respect to your second question about couples under different religions, what can they resist your marriage in? So first, I want to start off by saying matrimonial laws in this country is very religion specific. So a lot of people ask me, I'm born a Hindu, but I identify as an atheist. But if you are married under Hindu customary laws and traditions, then you will be governed under the Hindu Marriage Act. Tamil Nadu has a very interesting amendment called the Suyamariyade Tirmanam, which is a self-respect marriage. What defines the Hindu law is when you finish the Saptapadi, the seven steps around a fire. But because of the amendment in Tamil Nadu, you don't need that. In the presence of witnesses, you can just declare each other as husband and wife or exchange garlands or exchange rings. That also constitutes a valid Hindu marriage in Tamil Nadu. The Christian Marriage Act has certain requirements for two people being married. Under the Hindu Marriage Act, both parties need to be Hindus. But in the Christian Marriage Act, it's sufficient if one party is Christian for that marriage to be considered a valid Christian marriage. The focus on getting a registration certificate from the church in a Christian marriage is also very important. A special marriage act deals with a marriage between two people from different religions. There's another interesting element in the act, right? It deals with two things. 
solemnization of a marriage under a special marriage act and two is registering a marriage that has been performed in other forms under the special marriage act so with respect to solemnizing a marriage is what we see in all these movies with uh, going away to the registrar's office and getting married to do that however you need to give a notice intending to marry the other person this notice will then be put up in notice boards the process is a little complicated and not at all friendly to two people from different religions who want to marry because more often than not this is a marriage that their families and society itself doesn't respect so to my knowledge you need to display this notice in the jurisdiction of both the partners and not just the office you intend to get married in and then after that after this notice period is over and if there are no opposition you can continue to get married by going to the registrar's office and solemnizing your marriage under the special marriage act second is interesting registering a marriage that has been performed in a religious way under the hindu marriage act or under the christian marriage act or according to muslim rights and traditions under the special marriage act so when you register your marriage under the special marriage act whatever your marriage is now going to be governed by the special marriage act so interestingly if you are a muslim couple who have been married according to muslim rights and traditions and remember muslim law is not codified so you would not have a muslim marriage act like you have a hindu marriage act or a christian marriage act so dissolution of a muslim marriage can only happen through a suit filed under the civil procedure code read with mohammedan law however if two muslims register their marriage under the special marriage act they can file a petition before the family courts to dissolve their marriage under the special marriage act because their marriage even though it has been solemnized according to muslim rights and traditions has now been registered under the special marriage act so special marriage act terms and conditions will follow this is interesting for a number of reasons and there can also be discrepancies because of it like for example the separation period for getting a divorce under the hindu marriage act and special marriage act is one year but for christian marriages it is two years you need to be separate for a period of 2 years so these matrimonial laws themselves are not uniform and especially with things as important as separation period in time of a marriage they are uniquely different special marriage act has the distinction of having these two separate concepts within it solemnization of a marriage under special marriage act and registering a marriage performed according to other religious acts under the special marriage act. we can see that there's clearly a lot of information that you need to probably filter and understand and process so you know people who are like normal citizens who have to like deal with the family courts or who have to like going to register their marriage under the special marriage act so how do you think like people should go about accessing this information when you're going through a matrimonial issue it's hard to just call up someone and say hey my husband's been treating me with cruelty for the past 5 years how do you think i can get out of this marriage and then suddenly people clam up suddenly they say no you why don't you give marriage another shot or they'll just very secretively say here this third cousin of this fifth cousin of mine you know they've gone to a divorce i think but they're not in the city so if you want to call them at the dead of the night when nobody around you is listening maybe they can guide you it's very hush hush also the lack of access is something you can see 
very clearly in many villages and towns and cities there are people who still believe that if you sign on a stamp paper saying that your marriage is officially ended it means you are divorced you are very much still married and in the meanwhile they would have gone ahead and contacted another marriage which then gives rise to more complications in law because now you're guilty of bigamy and it doesn't stem from desire to violate the law it comes from not knowing what the law is and many people believe and actively want this stamp paper idea because going to court is embarrassing standing in family court is embarrassing acknowledging that your marriage has failed in front of other people is not what society expects of you so the fact that that happens is not just because of lack of information it's also because of people unwilling to share the information even if they are privy to it because of some extremely patriarchal notion to save these marriages so i think the only way forward to bring more transparency in matrimonial law is more people writing about it not just in english but also in vernacular is for the same organizations that conduct workshops on domestic violence and uh, sexual abuse to also include divorce and matrimonial law reliefs as part of their output to women so they also know so that getting out of a marriage is it will never be as easy as entering a marriage but we can even the odds there if this information is out in the public domain for women to know that being cruelty under the acts is not just physical cruelty but also verbal abuse emotional abuse and economic abuse it's not just if he hits you you can get a divorce no there are so many other things that involve what cruelty is now all this from what i have seen and interacted with people is not out in the public domain yet so what i do in my part as a lawyer is when women come to me with these problems and wonder if there is a solution to file an fir or to file a domestic violence complaint i also tell them that they have this option of divorce under matrimonial law what the provision is and what the process is so they have all the options before them to make that decision how do you think that you know when parties want to argue something and bring it under the ambit of cruelty what kind of evidence does the family court look at and also how do they generally treat these things so when we talk about cruelty it's important to note that the definition of cruelty varies across different legislations right so for example under the hindu marriage act it just says after solemnization of the marriage treated the petitioner with cruelty The Indian Divorce Act however that's applicable to Christians has an added clause it says has treated the petitioner with such cruelty as to cause a reasonable apprehension in the mind of the petitioner that would be harmful or injurious for the petitioner to live with the respondent so the threshold under the Indian Divorce Act to prove cruelty increases it's not just that he has treated you with cruelty it is treated you with cruelty to such an extent that you cannot reasonably live with your spouse anymore so cruelty itself as according to case laws laid down by the supreme court is extremely subjective in nature this is something that while the case laws have held it many people still don't understand it there comes the element that you discussed to what extent will courts consider it courts are not going to dismiss a petition immediately because they don't see any merit in it after you file a petition the case in a family court setting will be referred to mediation 
or counseling and people are encouraged to settle their disputes as amicably as possible without it becoming a contested matter now subordinate courts and district courts are also referring the matter to lok adalats or their own domestic way of adr it needn't be strict mediation or strict counseling if there's a lok adalat that's being held then matrimonial cases may be referred that to see if it can be settled so if mediation or counseling fails then the respondent will have to file their counter now you may not have strictly called evidence to file along with your case these are all things that happen between husband and wife in extremely close quarters someone's definition of cruelty can be being subjected to unnatural acts of sex that they don't want to it can be constant criticism of the other person inside a room where no one else is there it can be flinging food across the dining hall because they are not happy with it these are things that other people are not witness to it's just you and your spouse and you can't expect to live a marriage by taking your camera everywhere and recording every single conversation that you've had in fact some people's concerns can also be that he is not respecting my privacy we have cctv cameras everywhere in the house and i cannot live in a house like this but not all people have access to smartphones not all people can record conversations and you may just at that point of time not be able to record it let's say even with physical abuse what you can do after you have been hit is have someone take photos of those injuries with the time stamp or hold the day's newspaper and take photos of those physical injuries to show that on such and such a date you have a bruise this would in normal circumstances be quote and quote perfect evidence but what if you don't have that access to do that and many times if you go to police stations also they don't advise you to go to government hospitals they say go to private hospitals so that it's one less case you are not expected to have perfect evidence while filing a case yes it does make your case stronger if you file a case with those photographs with those video calls with those emails with those abusive voice recordings but it's okay even if you don't so it's important that when you want to file a case and if you don't have evidence it's still okay to do it chances are that it can even settle at the time of counseling chances are it can be proved at the time of trial you can't hesitate or you shouldn't hesitate to file a case because you feel you don't have enough evidence because at some point in an abusive relationship and if people feel that their breaking point is there they need to take that step to file that case how effective do you think this mediation process is is it just a mechanism to get the case load off from the main case list or is the mediation is actually a thoughtful sensitive process where people are trying to understand because sometimes something just can't be mediated as well so in your like experience how effective do you think this mediation process is and how it's been used i'm in a complete favor of mediation because i think that this is probably the first time in the history of their matrimonial dispute that a husband and a wife are just facing each other and a third party mediator not family not friend not someone they know and they are asked to talk about what has happened to them in some cases it's therapeutic in some cases it's just pure anger but at the end of the day what you do have is people putting their issues out there 
and in many cases of divorce it can also be silence that led to that divorce right it can be complete non communication from one party to the other so here they have to talk about what happened to them and what happened to their case of course you're right if one party does not want to cooperate nothing can force them to do mediation in such cases mediation has has failed even before it has started and i'm not talking about these cases i'm talking about cases where people actually want to talk about their issues to their spouse to see if it can be sorted so let's say both of them want to divorce then it's up to the mediator to now tactfully see how to get that marriage to a mutual consent rather than a contested process that can hurt both of them so the right mediator and the counselor is also very important in these situations there's one more thing i actually want to discuss which is also like a concept i don't know how many people will be familiar with it but there is some thing called like restitution of conjugal rights is there any merit in retaining this what about the implication it has on like privacy and the agency of the partner against whom this remedy is actually granted <laughs> sorry i'm laughing restitution of conjugal rights is the <laughs> i in my in my restitution of conjugal rights is like this landline phone that nobody uses very rarely uses and it's just going to go defunct at any point of time <laughs> so a uh, restitution of conjugal rights is a remedy that's available under personal laws that basically it's you go to the court saying hey my spouse is gone away from me and the court is like why why did you leave this person without cause so it's now up to the other partner to say no i left them because i simply cannot bear to be with them anymore or it's for them to say no i left them because of my own free will like i don't see this marriage going anywhere and then the court decides on whether or not this person has been left for a good reason or for no reasonable cause that's the word in the uh, in the clause and if the court feels that this spouse has been abandoned with no reasonable cause order for restitution of conjugal rights which is exactly what it sounds <laughs> uh resuming conjugal relations with your spouse under the same roof in the same house is passed now it makes absolutely no sense to pass such an order in this day and age it goes against every aspect of agency of privacy and of that person's independence yet this remedy exists so a lot of people ask me oh my god if this order is passed does it mean i have to go live with them the answer is no nothing can force you to go live with a person who you don't want to even if an order of restitution of conjugal rights is passed you will not be forced to go live with the person the police is not going to come knock on your door saying hey how come you have not gone back to your spouse's house after the order is passed nothing like that in fact a ground for divorce is when your spouse has not respected the order of restitution of conjugal rights so that remedy exists for the person who has spent a lot of time money and energy to go to court asking for the wife to come back and she doesn't come back the law says okay like she's not coming back just go ahead and file for divorce so restitution of conjugal rights is a very archaic concept that's come to us as part of this great british legacy that we have not been able to shake off even in our personal laws and if you look at the spate of judgments the supreme court in the case of um, joseph shine versus union of india that deals with adultery the supreme court found that uh, some things part of our british legacy have to be struck down it's the doctrine of coverture 
So actually how adultery as a criminal penal provision worked in India is that the wife could not file for adultery if her husband is cheating on her. It was only a man who could file a case against another man who was at that point engaged in extramarital relations with his wife. So this is how adultery worked. It completely stripped the woman of agency and it also made sure she could not complain even if her husband is the one who was engaging in adultery. So coverture is a term where after marriage, the wife's existence or entity is absorbed into the husband's. So she, as her own person, has no right to make a complaint or raise anything. This doctrine of coverture found itself in the adultery clause in our Indian Penal Code, which the Supreme Court then struck down. So maybe the same thing can happen here. There is a challenge to the restitution of conjugal rights petition that is currently pending. 20 years back, the Supreme Court found that restitution of conjugal rights is perfectly okay. They have in fact said that in 1984, in the case of Saroj uh, Rani, the Supreme Court said that restitution of conjugal rights has a social purpose that aids in the preservation of marriage. But this was nearly 30 years back. So times have changed, society has changed. It's high time this clause also changes and is removed, is my personal opinion. But it is still being used by people. If not anything to show that they want to save the marriage first, it's just that their spouse was moved away from them. I do think there's hope for restitution of conjugal rights also to be viewed as unconstitutional in the future, especially since the Supreme Court has held in a nine-judge bench that the right to privacy is a fundamental right. So let's see what happens. Yeah, yeah. No, while we were discussing this, you know, very... Uh awkward kind of a provision that's the restitution of conjugal rights which is doesn't really it doesn't really sit well with many things so i was just thinking you know internationally you have this one ground called irreconceivable differences or something i wanted to ask you where it finds its place in the indian like you know we don't have irreconceivable breakdown of marriage we don't have divorce by irreconcilable differences we don't have that the closest to that is the divorce by mutual consent but we don't have a no-fault divorce concept in India. So if you want to divorce your husband or your partner, it cannot just be because they're annoying or just because you have fallen out of love with them, which is a very reasonable cause to go for divorce. If you want to divorce and they are not willing for a divorce by mutual consent, then you have to go the contested path. You will have to file under either cruelty or desertion or whatever remedies available to you under personal laws. This is something that is quite draining when you just want to get out of a marriage which you feel is not working, but somehow you're not able to because you're forced to find a fault in it, even if it doesn't exist. But that's just how the law is now. Now, how will the court determine like who gets custody of the minor child or children and do they take into account what the child wants at that time even if it's a minor child and once like if a custody order is given can it be changed or is it final like what can you tell us a little bit about what happens in the custody proceedings under indian law custody and guardianship are two different things custody is physically having the child with you guardianship is the ability to make decisions for the child. Now, under Hindu law, the father is supposed to be the natural guardian of the child. However, after Supreme Court judgments and case laws, the mother is also recognized as natural guardian of the child. 
the statute that deals with guardianship and custody hindus have their own personal law about it but the guardians and wards act is secular now if you want to be appointed as the guardian of a child you file under this act now what the court looks at is one who has the child been with the longest and who is the child comfortable with so let's say that the child has been with the mother for 10 years you will not have a court that removes the child from the mother's custody and hands it over so second the court will look at what's best for the welfare of the child welfare and best interest are words that will be repeated in uh, cases pertaining to guardianship and custody how this welfare and best interest is determined the courts have a set of factors one uh, who has been with the child longest two who is capable of mentoring the child who is capable of bearing the cost of education and everything But nowadays courts are also looking at who else is there to look after the child grandmothers or nannies or do they have the ability to put a child in daycare so all these are factors that the courts look into while deciding guardianship however the process of guardianship itself is going to be a case is going to be exhausting both physically and mentally so in the interim you can ask for visitation rights to go see the child and to stay in contact with them an interesting concept that's emerging is communication rights because courts are recognizing that in a globalized world sometimes the father is in america when the mother is in india so you can't expect to fly down every week to see your child so communication through facetime or skype or video call is just as important so the father or the mother who is the non custodial parent is what they are called when the child is with the other parent to be given communication rights to be able to interact and speak to the child are also things that are coming before courts now another very interesting concept is parental alienation syndrome when one child has been with one parent for a very long time that's completely alienated from the non custodial parent what can the non custodial parent do to remedy this courts are encouraging children to go to psychiatrists and child therapists and counselors to see what's happening and how best to rectify the parental alienation syndrome and courts can also speak to the children to decipher what the child wants if it's a 5 year old or 4 year old kid there is not much you can ascertain but let's say the child is 10 or 11 can has a good idea of what's happening around them and knows where the child is most comfortable with then the wishes of the child will definitely be very important factor when the court is considering guardianship and custody so i want to ask just a one question because i mean most of i understand and recognize that we've had this discussion very very much centered on heteronormative people so what i want to ask what is the like can individuals in a live in relationship irrespective of their sexuality or lgbtq couples can they approach the family court for anything let alone like separation or other matters how does the court treat them or they are really completely out of the process because that's also quite a scary thing i would say because you're a citizen but you have no access to this right and now it's just a very very scary state of affairs so the law currently only recognizes marriage between a man and a woman that is unfortunately where the law stands right now all personal laws i think a petition is pending to make um, uh, marriages between same sex couples legal under the special marriage act that however is still pending and uh, interestingly however for the lgbtqia community there have been recent judgments of the madras high court for example 
where it was held that marriage between a transgender woman and a man is valid under the Hindu Marriage Act and can be registered also. So it's a judgment by Justice G.R. Swaminathan where the Hindu Marriage Act doesn't say man and woman. It says bride and bridegroom. Those are the terms that are used. So he says that under the Nalsa judgment, your self-identified gender is that of a woman. You are a woman. Hence, you do fit the definition of bride under the Hindu Marriage Act. So this was a case that came up before the registrar office refused to register a marriage between a transgender woman and a man. So I got this judgment held that no, if you self-identify as a woman and you marry a man, your marriage is still valid under the Hindu Marriage Act and thus can be registered. So I understand that this is a very small victory, but it's a victory nonetheless. So marriage between trans couples can now also be registered and it's a valid marriage. And then a lot of people have asked me, but how do I get this marriage registered? And then the answer to that, I say is no, because I'm in Chennai, I say that no, you have the remedy of a Suyamariya Dei even if you don't want to go to the full-fledged marriage. So in the presence of witnesses, if you choose to marry each other, following whatever is provided under the Hindu Marriage Act, it is still a valid, recognized marriage. I don't know if other states are also recognizing this, but it's a Madras High Court judgment. So I think if other people in other states do want to try it, they should be able to. So marriage between two people professing the same identity, gender identity, is not yet recognized in Indian law, not even under Special Marriage Act. You can choose to live in with your partner, but the remedies that you have under law, if that live-in relationship is not very successful or if you're subjected to abuse in that, is still definitely something that needs a legislature for. We don't yet have it. My advice to live-in couples would be to get insurance together, to open a bank account together. I think slowly private players are allowing people to open joint bank accounts it is a much more difficult process than it is if you are to waltz in as a married couple and my complete sympathies with the community for that but right now there is not much you can do but you can choose to solidify your relationship by opening a joint account by purchasing insurance together Uh, by maybe putting your names together on the lease deed or the rent agreement or a purchase agreement. But if, let's say, that this relationship fails or if this relationship breaks down and if, let's say, you have jointly purchased property together, you may not be able to go to the family court to seek a relief because your marriage is not yet or your union is not yet recognized. You will have to approach a city civil court with respect to separation of property or something like that so with respect to matrimonial law remedies there is none at the moment what about the domestic violence act so under the domestic violence act a domestic relationship is defined as a marriage or in the nature of marriage and the supreme court has defined in the nature of marriage to mean a relationship which can potentially end in a marriage which unfortunately today same-sex couples do not have. This narrow definition also not only affects them, it also affects women who are living in with someone who's already married because that person cannot marry the person living with them since they're already married. Their union cannot end in what is legally recognized as marriage. 
So remedies under the Domestic Violence Act also are currently out of the picture now. Yeah, so which pretty much means what I said, right? So they are really out of the system in so many ways. And that's a really, I think, not something that we can be proud of because, uh, you know, we have to try and uh, give the same rights to all the citizens irrespective of gender and sexual orientation. So you can do by starting perhaps... to amend the Domestic Violence Act a bit. If you make police stations more accessible, that itself will be a huge relief to the community who currently face a lot of harassment and discrimination from the police authorities themselves, which make it very difficult to give complaints, especially against their own partners. I guess it's a lot to do with sensitization as well. When you're going to make something accessible, it's also about sensitizing the system and the people who are all there in the system, including like the justice system, the police force. It's slowly happening. The judgment of the Madras High Court that recently come up do say that police personnel have to be sensitized to close a missing person complaint that sometimes parents of um, uh, the LGBTQIA community file against them in order to harass them and to make them come home when they have left an abusive home environment is to be closed upon a receipt from that person that, no, I, the reason I left home is because of this. So police have been instructed to do all that. Whether they're carrying it out or not is a different story. And I have used it to good effect in one case personally. When uh, we had a police complaint, a missing person complaint close after a return representation from one person. Of course, I had to go to the high court twice. One, to seek police protection. And second, to quash that complaint under 482 CRPC. But end of the day, the police station themselves closed the complaint and gave the action dropped report to the high court. This was also a police station deep south in a small town who probably would not have had access to the what the law has said or what the high court has said as quickly as a police station in a metro city. So I think change within these police stations also is going to be slow, but it is happening. Actually, it's a good point you make because when we talk about information access, it's not just the citizens, you know. It's sometimes people in the system also face this a little gap. We often forget that we just assume everybody knows everything. It's just the citizens who are not aware. But pretty much when access is a very, you know, it's a very different thing. It affects everybody. For example, the list and phone numbers of the protection officers in Tamil Nadu is published in the Social Welfare Department's website. But how many people, you know, can go access the Social Department Welfare, download that PDF, then call the number on it? So I was thinking, is there any scope you know, systemically speaking in the family court proceedings, is there scope to like tweak the system, for example, like just to do away with this presence of the couple every single hearing? Because I think people don't see the repercussions sometimes, you know, somebody could be losing like a work day because they come every month for a hearing. If it's a contested divorce, it goes on for 10 years. And what am I supposed to do? Like what job can I possibly hold if I have to miss a day like every month and then keep a track of this? I find it a little concerning that sometimes there is a a way to tweak the system. Do you think there is any scope to make the process a little citizen friendly? See, when you look at people having to come to court, Avideh, I agree with you, it can be a problem for many people. But let's say in child custody cases, that's the only time in a month that the other parent gets, non-custodial parent gets to see the child because of a court order to meet the child in the family care center. Or in maintenance cases, when interim maintenance has been awarded, let's say 5,000 or 7,000 rupees, the husband actually gives that money in cash to wife in the court in front of the judge. So for me, 
family courts are not just having to come to court every because you have a case it's quite literally you trying to finish what's most pressing matter of your life fast in court and a lot happens in the court premises between the two parties that may eventually help the matter settle but i agree with you that it can be very cumbersome especially for single working women and what would they do like i've had to speak to employers on the phone saying no she has a family court case she has to come it can be very difficult so i think it starts by making the process easier maybe let's say issuing a litigant pass so that they don't have to wait in long lines at the family queue centers to actually having proper seating in courts i find many courts are missing proper seating ventilation for the parties or even dividing family court proceeding into time slots so you can come at that time because you have 10:30 to 4:30 or 5 o'clock right so you don't have to wait from the morning to for your case to be called and get over maybe dividing those cases in time slots will also help family courts are right now also accepting power agent petitions to represent a party so let's say that if you cannot go to court often but if your retired father or mother can have, i mean of course the privilege that comes with having a supportive family is not something everybody has and that's like completely agree with you about that but family courts are also accepting power agent petitions there are small small changes but yes i think this party in persons compulsorily can maybe be done away with and them to be present in court only when called would help a lot of people but i don't see that happening unless there's an amendment to the family court act itself because of covid so many people have lost monthly maintenance coming to them because their cases are getting adjourned and through video conferencing there's not much you can do but i do think because of video conferencing now family courts are forced to find another method to speak to the parties directly so maybe that will go a long way in changing the party in person thing also who knows we'll have to see that was my conversation with chetna v and you've been listening to the daksh podcast this episode was hosted by me sandhya if you like the show don't forget to follow or subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode we would love to hear from you so do share your feedback either by dropping us a review or rating the podcast where podcast apps allow you to talk about it on social media we are using the hashtag #dakshpodcast it really helps get the word out there most of all if you found some useful information that might help a friend or family member Share the episode with them. A special thank you to our production team at Made in India, our production head and editor Joshua Thomas, mixing and mastering Karthik Kulkarni, and project supervisor Sean Phantom. If you want to find out more about this topic, please have a look at the reading list in the episode description. And to get in touch, visit our website dakshindia.org. That's d a k s h india.org. Thank you for listening.